Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome to my favourite time of the week. And as part of the Inspiring Leadership series, I'm very honoured to have General Sir Richard Sheriff. And Richard has had a fascinating career, um, formerly the, De- uh, the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe for NATO. Uh, he now is the co-founder and the managing partner of uh, Stratega Worldwide. Uh, he's also the author of War with Russia 2017, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Had a fascinating career as a King's Royal Azar officer, um, commanding the ARC, 3 UK Division, and the Desert Rats, 7 Armoured Brigade, and um, Education, Oundel School, and Exeter College. So, Richard, welcome. Great to have you on the series. Thank you, Jonathan. And very good to, very good to be with you. Um, so, so, perhaps you could begin with just sort of telling us about the kind of work you're doing right now at uh, Stratego Worldwide. Um, but, but also the journey that took you to leadership, maybe, you know, fascinating about your life sort of up in this part of the world where I am here in, in Lincolnshire when you're at Oundle and then at the university and things like that, and then on into the army. It'd just be lovely to hear some of your stories and lessons for leadership on the way, really. Sure. Um, firstly, that uh, Strategia Worldwide, and I should just, forgive me, correct your pronunciation, no reason why. I'm dyslexic. I get all sorts of things wrong. Yes, they're interesting. <laughs> Um, Strategia is a is a risk management consultancy which I, I set up initially on my own six years ago, then linked up with my business partner in 2015, um, and actually we relaunched or re-registered as a company just over five years ago and launched uh, formally uh, in February 16, so just short of five years. Um, we we look at risk, we test risk, we understand risk, and we help clients design strategy to manage risk. Um, and this is this, this is this is a philosophy and a way of looking at risk drawn directly um, from from my military my military background my military experience because when I looked at this in the civilian world, what I saw was risk being looked at in silos, and the experience of commanding in on campaigns in, in in Kosovo at an operational level in Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan at a strategic level highlighted to me, has highlighted to me, the importance of building bridges and understanding the relationships between risk. Because so often, it's where the gaps are that companies, that boards get caught out. And I think the recent experience has highlighted that, the experience of the pandemic has highlighted that. Um, so as, as part of that, of course, so it's not only understanding and testing risk, strategy design, but fundamental to any strategy design is testing it, stress testing it. So the tried and tested principles of wargaming are really valuable here. And they're just as relevant in the civilian, in the, in, in the civilian world, the private sector, uh, as they are in, in, in the military world. And then linked to that, of course, is testing people's capability to manage crises, which of course could not be more important at the moment. 
Um, I guess my journey starts as a small boy. I grew up in, in, in Kenya, what was then called Kenya. My father was a, was a veteran of the Second World War. He'd fought in uh, Burma against the Japanese, uh, uh, Abyssinia against the Italians. And interestingly, he'd also fought in Madagascar against the Vichy French. Um, and as a small boy, I grew up with stories of, 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 of him and his, 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 his wartime experiences, which then when I was about five sort of rather clammed up but Kenya was also a, a, an environment which was very, you know, very much outdoors. And I think as, as, as small boys, we just played, you know, we played soldiers constantly. So it was sort of embedded from an early age. Back to England, all that disappeared. Um, and I went to Oxford and thinking I was going to come out of Oxford as a, with a view to going into the law. But I started to meet people who'd done in-service degrees um, and you know, in, in uh, sort of pre gap years or in-service degrees in, in, with, with the army. And that old, you know, the old itch began to return. So I can remember thinking one, one long night when I, 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 I sat, sat up all night thinking about what I was going to do, decided to go for the army. And the rest is history in a way, commissioned out of Santos um, and a career in the first of the 14th Trent of the Tsars and the King's Royal Tsars. And, and you've outlined some of the things that, that some of the jobs I did. Yeah, no, fascinating. And and who, at that time, as you were growing up, who influenced you quite a lot? Perhaps, I mean, maybe your father, I'm not sure, but, but, but with your values and, and the way you behave and things like that, does it go back to a few people who really shaped you? Uh, my father, very much so. Um, and I've sort of described his, and I, you know, I think it's a little measure of, the measure of, of you know, he, 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 you know, he was, he was, he was an old-fashioned guy. He was an old-fashioned man. I remember before I went off on my first operational tour, all he said was, "Do your duty," um, and and actually now, you know, my son's just deployed on operations, and and you know, I, I say the same thing to him: "Do your duty." But I would highlight two teachers, and I think in everybody's in everybody's life, there's one or two teachers from school who change things. One was my history master, um, Alan Midgley at Arundel, who, who made me believe I could, I could reach for the heights and, and go for Oxford, uh, Oxford uh, the Oxford Gentry. I never thought I could, but Alan Midgley made me believe that. Um, and, and, and without him, I'd never have got into Oxford and that changed my life. The other was my rowing coach, um, uh, Vic Northwood, who who'd come back from teaching um, at an Australian um, public school and had coached Australian crews there. And he approached coaching and rowing coaching in a completely different way from the traditional, the traditional rather amateurish way that we'd, we'd looked at it. And certainly schoolboys didn't do professional rowing coaching, but Vic brought, it, brought in proper thought through coaching, proper physical preparation and training, uh, put us through circuit training and weights in the gym for hours. And as we all know from the military world, it's, it's what's in the mind that gets you through those really major physical challenges. Um, and he, so he taught me, he sort of, it, that experience with Vic taught me that it's all in the mind and, and to really dig deep when, when, when things get physically tougher than you can ever believe that, that, that you know, you're putting up with. So it was a great impression. You know, and as, and as a teenager, those, that, that, that made a great impression on me. No, fascinating. Two very influential people for you. And 
going to uh, Oxford and you, you're now uh, an honorary fellow of Exeter College. Um, what was the what was the the highlights of what you learned there? I mean, obviously an amazing experience, but but how did that um, what some would describe as a, a very privileged experience, but yet you know you were with some very interesting people. How did that shape you for the rest of your your life, and how have you connect, kept the connection with the college? You're right. It, it it was a massive privilege to 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 go to Exeter, and you know I followed my father into the same college, and indeed my great uncle was at that college, and his name's on the the memorial from the First World War. So there was a you know as much as anything, there was a, a sort of a, a link, family link there. Um, I wish I'd done better. I wish I'd thought about it more. And looking back, I wasted a hell of a lot of time. And if I'd gone, I always think if I'd gone in my late 20s, I could really have made the most of, made, made the most of being in Oxford. But notwithstanding that, I just think that three years was, was utterly formative because it put one together with a number of really able contemporaries um, who've done exceptionally well in different fields. And in that sort of classic way, when you're at that formative stage of, of your life, I can remember many long nights of sitting over cups of coffee after, after supper, probably when we should have been working, but actually we were we were, you know, we were we were really thrashing through some, I guess, you know, some quite weighty, some you know, thoughtful discussions about the about things, um, the world, philosophy, you know, thinking about about things, which which in a sense is what it's all about. So may not have done as well on the academics, but I can tell you just the experience of bouncing off and sparking ideas with some really capable people, uh, many of whom have stayed friends, has uh, was, was you know has been been long lasting. Yeah, that's fascinating because the other inspiring leaders on the series, um, we've had over 100 now, um, a number of them talk about um, choose who you spend your time with because you'll learn so much from them, you know, and people who give you energy and stretch you, but also at the same time as you've done in your own business now, in your risk management business, um, get the best people you can afford. Um, you know, surround yourself with an army of giants, people are metaphorically two inches taller than you. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on that, that, that point of who you keep your company with and also how you uh, get talent around. Like you had James Cameron, who's been on this series, as your chief of staff when you were uh, warfighting. So, you know, you've, I think you've done that throughout your career, but I'm just interested in your view on it. Well, in the army, um, I, I never applied the American approach to you know, pluck people from different jobs to put around me. The you know, we don't do that in the British Army. You you take you take the team you're given, um, and 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 I think that this is why the British Army is so good because almost without exception, the team is really really good. And why is it good? Because of the time and effort the Army puts into selecting and training leaders, selecting and training staff officers, and the rigor of the selection process. Um, so, you know, one was blessed with some really capable people uh, in the team in, 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 the army, in the army world. And it's not just the British Army, too, actually. You know, my last seven years were spent in a NATO, two NATO command environments where the quality of our multinational um, comrades spoke for itself. And so, you know, from all different nations coming together. In Strategia, it's clear it's different. We don't hire people. 
we have a network of associates um, and, and uh, senior advisors. Uh, so we don't have anybody on a salary or a retainer. We clearly pay for work done on a day, day rate basis. And we also pay finders fees for, for work brought in by our associate team. But we've grown that pool of talent um, in a totally organic and ad hoc way. And the consequence of that is that we've got, um, we've got a really extraordinarily diverse, eclectic group of people with indus different industry expertise, different, different technical expertise in risk, whether environmental or social or strategic communications or security or po po geopolitical or whatever, and extraordinary regional expertise as well. Um, and because we're all people who, you know, we're, we, we've all got, you know, we've all done things. Uh, we've all got, ex you know, experience around the world doing things. Um, we can bring to the party some, you know, some real capability, which, which, which we're very lucky to have. And that's a really good point you make. And when interviewing Charlotte Valour, who had been the chair of the IOD, and she's in BlackRock as chair as well in various other places, she was saying she once went to a private equity company and um, all the top team of the private equity company were all Harvard MBAs. And she said, mm -hmm. so where's the diversity? You know, you're all thinking alike. And it sounds like you're not in your NATO experience when you had so many uh, different nations in the mix, um, but, but also in the way you pick out your, your different experts that you, you bring a lot of diversity in it. it particularly with Black Lives Matter and the killing of George Floyd and things like that, the people are going, we don't want just a homogeneous one mindset, one view, particularly to solve problems. Um, you need a, a greater variety. Are you finding that still uh, is very much your mindset? Uh, it, it, that diversity is absolutely critical. Um, and if there's one, you know, there's one criticism I've got of, of boards that, that I see, and it is that despite the, the, the emphasis on diversity, um, too often in mining companies, you'll find miners and chartered accountants who make up the board. It's one thing, of course, gender diversity is, is critical, um, but it's more than gender diversity, it's professional diversity as well. People with very different backgrounds, ideally different ages as well, different generations, because too often, there is a lack of challenge, a lack of asking really difficult, tricky questions. So you need some disruptors as well, who are going to ask the difficult questions and come at it from a completely different perspective and a different uh, viewpoint. And if you can do that, you're going to build resilience. And, and as we'll get onto, no doubt, that is absolutely fundamental. Yeah, and it is interesting that another uh, lady who's appearing, Paz Avalos, who is from Peru and she's in the mining business. You talk about mining and the risk that you do there, working for Sodexo as one of their very senior execs. And um, Paul Bean, who, who is also in the facilities management world and very successful CEO, uh, he really rates her because she was very different. And also the fact that she didn't think alike. Um, her, her big thing that she, she talks about was that when she came out as, as being gay, she now lives in Australia with her partner, but she has a very different, refreshing view on things. And when you've got white, male, stale, pale, uh, everybody, there's a danger they all think alike. They've got to have lots of diversity of thinking, not just identity. Don't you agree? 
I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So um, fascinating career, all these different things, and a, a lot of operations that you've you've been on. Some of them quite bloody and difficult, and uh, you know, particularly when you're in Basra uh, in southeast Iraq, that was a really tough gig for anybody. And um, as we were discussing, you, you found quite a demoralized organization in some of the places that you've been to, to try and pick people up and deal with a situation when politicians want to have the glory of it, but they haven't got the support of their party as we had with Blair. Um, but yet you're still being asked to do a job, but with your arms tied behind your back and half the resources. I'm just interested in the highs and lows of your career and your life and, and what you learned from the best times and, and from some of the difficult times. I mean, you, you, you touch on, on, on Iraq um, and it was a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a tricky time. Um, this was 2006 and seven when the, uh, and I, yeah, I, I, I went out there for my, I was, I was the divisional commander for the, for the four provinces, looking after the four provinces of Southeast Iraq with charged with getting them to a state of what was called provincial Iraqi control under which all respons responsibility for security and, 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 and the like would be handed back to the Iraqis. And the fundamental requirement was security. Uh, and when I went out for my reconnaissance with my divisional headquarters team, because it was, I was basically taking the three div team out to, to, to run, the, run the organization, run the operation. Um, in the May of 2006, I found um, a, this was not, if I'm honest, this was not the British Army that I, I was hugely proud of, of, of being an officer in because it was very much on the back foot. There was an atmosphere of, if not defeat, at least of, of, of uh, the initiative had been lost. Um, and I think this stemmed from a, if I, if a, a, a right from the very top, um, because there was no clear strategy, um, except get out. Uh, this was a, an operation, this was a war that you'll remember the demonstration of over a million people. Uh, it did not have the support of the British people. Um, and indeed, the then chief of the general staff went online saying that we were part of the problem in, in, in Southeast Iraq. So of course, this, this pervaded down. Um, and so when I came back from that, I, I was determined that if we were to achieve the mission, which was to get provincial Iraqi control for all four provinces, three of, two of the provinces were well on their way to it, but Basra and Amara in the north were not. We had to go onto the front foot. We had to retake the initiative. Um, Basra, a city of 1.3 million people, um, was effectively in was not under 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 coalition control. It was very much in the control of the military. So every movement around the city became an operation in its own right, and usually ended up in a fight. We could not generate. There were not enough. Uh, there was not enough mass to really dominate the city and dominate the ground. Um, and so we had to find ways of doing that. So with my divisional headquarters team, and you mentioned James Cowan, who was my chief of staff, we put together an operation. But I found it fell, it, it, it went, frankly, went down with like a lead balloon with the British military establishment, largely, certainly the, the PJHQ chain of command, although the then chief of the general staff, um, Mike Jackson, you know, he liked the idea and uh, the, the light of battle was in, in his eyes. 
But it, you know, anyway, we pressed ahead and after a fairly torrid time uh, with PGHQ, managed to get a minimal amount of reinforcement, launched the operation, Operation Trojan, which was all about surging into sections of the city, locking down security and bringing in reconstruction development to try and regain hearts and minds because we all know from counterinsurgency theory that it's all about bringing in the, alienating the irreconcilables and bringing the, the, the reconcilables on side. But if I'm honest, this was an operation that, although I, I absolutely, I'm convinced it was well-conceived and it was the right thing to do, uh, did not achieve the aim because it didn't have the support um, of the you know, from 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 the Minister of Defence that it needed. We probably needed an extra brigade, if I'm honest, and uh, that was not simply not forthcoming. In fact, it was the the uh, uh, the Governor of Basra when I talked to him about it. He said, "Fine." He said, "But you're going to need an extra brigade." So he, he knew he knew what it was about. Yeah. Um, but it did, I'm sure. It, it absolutely got people back into a different frame of mind, and and certainly the the way the soldiers responded when they came under fire, when they were fighting the, the you know, a well-equipped, very well-motivated um, uh, militia, the Jaish al-Mahdi, uh, I, I have absolutely nothing, nothing but the highest praise for the courage and the commitment and the dedication of, of, of the British, the Danish, um, and 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 other soldiers in the in the division, particularly the British and the Danish soldiers in Basra, did an outstanding job, and in the very finest traditions of of, of, the, of the British Army and the Danish Army. Yeah, and you know that that story, lions led by donkeys. Um, I wasn't describing any of the officers there, donkeys, but we um, it, it came out in your excellent book, War with Russia, 2017, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, you, you gave the human side to it and also what worked and what didn't. And, you know, uh, with the uh, the aircraft carrier getting sunk and things like that, it was just fascinating. And I go, this is so close to what could go wrong. And I, I do think, I don't know, um, did it make the Russians think a bit that we were quite serious? And of course, people, there are troops now in the uh, Baltic states. Who knows, your book might have made much more impact than you ever realized. But you, you talk about the sort of the politics and the, the dynamics and between people. Uh, and one of the things, knowing your career and what you've had to overcome, is coping with a lot of people's own egos and agendas and the politics, big P, small P, and people's career ambition, things like that, clearly will protect the guilty. But um, there are lessons, I'm sure, from your time in the military, which are very relevant to many of the CEOs and senior execs I'm working with, who are struggling with egos and individuals who are doing things which are quite self-serving and not for the good of the whole organization. Even would we'd call it perhaps a little bit toxic at times. So taking all that experience you've had, what, what are the lessons you'd pass on to, to business leaders of what you found in a political environment when certain egos and people have their own agendas, which isn't in the interest of the organization? How should they approach it? What should they do? Well, I think you've got to pick your fight. Um, and I say that because generally speaking, I, I didn't pick my fights terribly well. I tended to, you know, tended to, 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 to get onto the front foot. And, and I, you know, I think one lesson I've abs I absolutely learned is that persuasion 
and diplomacy can probably achieve a great deal more than sort of charging charging at the objective. And I, I think if, you know, if it, I, I, I'm absolutely guilty of, of the latter. Um, more through sort of passion, determination to put things right. I mean, I think the, you know, we were discussing the issue of our, of, of, of the treatment of our wounded soldiers earlier. Um, we did get there uh, in the end. We did get the military managed ward, despite the fact that the service chiefs had set their, had made a decision not to go for it. Um, but in doing it, what achieved the aim, the end game, was guile and the indirect approach. Um, and I can't, I won't say more than that, but there's no doubt that, you know, that, but having said all that, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I, I, I wouldn't have changed anything because without, without charging at it, without raising it as an issue, nothing would have been done. So sometimes you've just got to stick your head above the parapet and you've got to accept the incoming fire. Um, and you've got to sort of press on in the face of it. Because if you, if you believe that something needs to be done, um, there are too many, that it is too easy for people just to do nothing and abuses continue or wrongs continue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't apologize in any way, shape or form for, you know, although for, 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 for for raising that as an issue. And actually it was very much a partnership. It was a team effort with my, my wife as well. We, we both, you know, she was there visiting every fortnight. She knew the guys, she knew the issues, she knew the, the, the way they were being, the, 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 the consequences of these wounded soldiers ending up in a, a, a civilian orthopedic ward filled with geriatrics when actually what they needed was to be put into a military bubble where they could recover alongside other soldiers and laugh and cry and banter and support each other in the way that soldiers, you know, have done. That's the way the army works. Yeah. So it was a team effort, but my goodness me, it produced some, you know, some, you know, some, 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 some challenges. Yeah, and it, and it is lovely the way you've talked about the family connections um, with your service in the military, and and there you've got your son. Uh, doing his service too. So what bit of advice now in your 60s, you've got all this experience that you've had, you've got all these battle scars from life and from command and from leadership, uh, more um, mental rather than necessarily physical, I hope, uh, though you've seen so many who lost limbs in service of their country. Um, and, and this is particularly as we come to Remembrance Day, an important time to remember that service. I lost my father and my grandfather, both who served. Um, what bit of advice would the, the older, wiser you be giving to your son apart from, you know, do a good job, do your duty? Um, having learned these things, is a bit of wisdom that you'd pass on to anybody else at the start of their career now, having looked back over yours, uh, which is still going, but what would you give as a bit of advice? Well, I think... I think that you know the, the, the advice my father gave to me, which I continue to pass on, do your duty is not a bad way to start. But doing your duty, it's also about, I think I would say, you know, be pragmatic about what you take on. Select your fights, select your battles where you've got to stick your head above the parapet. 
and 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 build and build bridges because building bridges and establish is 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 absolutely so often the way to get things done rather than setting yourself up alone because we can what we do alone is not as half as good as what we can do with other people yeah yeah i i do relate to what you shared and at times at staff college or elsewhere i would sort of stand up and try and champion some particular thing but that wasn't the time or the place to do it i i should have been smarter about it rather than try and go headlong into it um, but anyway, you know, we, we learn afterwards. You and I have talked about this whole series, which is inspiring leadership. And with so much training and development and training of other inspiring leaders, and you've had people like James who worked for you. Um, what do you think makes a good inspiring leader, in your opinion, and a, and a good team as well? Because you've, you've created many teams. Well, if leadership is about inspiring people to do willingly and well, um, which I think it is. Uh, I, I think I think I'd start with character, uh, and I would highlight, in terms of qualities, I'd highlight courage number one as the first first quality. In fact, it was Churchill who said, uh, called it the verse first virtue because from it flow all others. Uh, yeah. Physical courage first, and, and in, in in a military context, of course, physical courage is 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 is, is rightly what we expect of. Of our of our officers, our young officers, our NCOs, because it's the true knightly virtue. But I'd also highlight moral courage, um, the courage to stand up and and be counted, the courage to to take the unpopular move, um, and and that's not easy. Um, and very often, you know, it may, means that that leadership is a pretty lonely business. Next, I would say integrity. And I think we all know that nothing undermines leadership more than bullshit, a failure to be straight, um, and, uh, and, and a failure to show integrity. Uh, and I think we see that around us everywhere. Where, where, so you know, integrity, that sense that, because it's from integrity that trust is built. And then, and then I think I'd highlight robustness. Um, uh, and again, you know, physical robustness, but also mental robustness, the robustness to take the knots, to absolutely have that unshakable will, which says, you know, in the lines of that great, you know, Kipling's great lines about, the, you know, that the will which says to them, hold on, um, that determination not to be, not to, not to be, not to be faced down by, by difficulties. Yeah. Um, you talk about the team and here I think, I think morale, the maintenance or the, the maintenance and the generation and the protection of morale is, is, is fundamental. Yeah. And I, I can't do better than to go back to the three, the three characteristics, uh, which, which the great Bill Slim highlights in his book, Defeat into Victory, the components of morale. First is spiritual, not in a religious sense, but in a sense of a, of a, great, and, a great and noble vision, a purpose. Uh, which lifts the soul, um, and uh, yeah, which which really inspires people to do to get up and do what needs to be done. Next is intellectual. Uh, people must feel they belong to uh, to an organisation that is run well enough to do what needs to be done, and that they need to be they need to be reassured and assured that the organisation is capable of achieving its aims. And then finally, material. 
And the irony here is that actually, this is all about, of course, it's about looking after people as well as you possibly can. Conditions, terms of service, pay, allowances, all these sort of things. People must feel they have a fair deal. It doesn't mean luxury, but it's got to, it's got to be fair. The irony, of course, being that in the military context, sometimes morale is highest where, where material material matters are, 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 you know, it's most arduous. But then that's soldiers taking a pride in, in being in a tough place. Um, and the culture of the team, I go back to trust, depends on trust. People must feel uh, they must trust each other. Uh, it helps in the army because of course we have this, <coughs> we have this, you know, the system, the regimental system and the like is all about inculcating this sense of being part of a band of brothers and sisters that, you know, the moment you've gone through basic training, you put on the cap badge, put on the berry, put on the town of Shanter, you know, parachute regiment, maroon berry, all, the, all that really sense of going through a tough time and being admitted to a brotherhood and a sisterhood. Mm. Um, and if you can, if, if, and it's difficult to emulate in business, I know, because of uh, people moving around, and fluidity and the like. But if you can do that, I think it's essential. But ultimately, trust comes from, under, and, a, and a leader gets trust, I think, through that sense of that people respect competence, they respect that he or she can do the job and is good at the job. Uh, they respect, and of course this comes from training, uh, it comes from education, uh, it comes from character, and it comes from flair. Mm. Very good points. And, and one of the challenges for many of the CEOs that I know and work with or managing directors is they, they haven't got that sort of regimental system. And psychological safety is, and trust is such a key component. And sometimes some of them make the mistakes where they make it all about themselves, the big I am, which is fine when you're starting. But then when the company grows from three of you or five of you to 500, 1,000, it can't be about the one, the one great man. It has to be this sense of pride that goes on with it. And, and if you were to pick a couple of leaders who've inspired you, who, who would be your favorite choices? Well, I, having, having reading um, Andrew, Andrew Roberts's masterful biography of Churchill, it's gotta be Churchill number one. I mean, he was, he was an extraordinary man. Um, he was, he was, he was brave. Uh, he'd seen active service as a young officer uh, in, I think, three different continents: America, uh, with the the the, the Spanish-American War in Cuba, um, on the northwest frontier of India, and of course in in Africa, at the, uh, charging as a as a troop leader in the twenty-first Lancers at the Battle of Omdurman, um, and of course he then. Having reached, you know, he's a cabinet officer, a cabinet minister, first lord of the admiralty. He takes the rap after the Dardanelles disaster of Gallipoli in 1915, and he take he, he then goes to the Western Front, and 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 becomes a commanding officer of the of the Highland Light Infantry Battalion and serves on the Western Front for six months, and was a damn good commanding officer too. I'm always out there on on uh, trench raids and 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 leading from the front, when he could have had a very very easy life back in back in Blighty. So, 
And it, you know, it would have gone on longer, but his battalion was disbanded. And so of course, you know, he, he, was, he, was, he was back back again. But I think so, courage, um, education. Uh, here's a man who's self-educated. He reads voraciously. He's got this ability to file away, rather like Napoleon, file away what he reads into a sort of complex mental filing cabinet from which he can draw thoughts, ideas, and of course, he's a great historian too. Um, and I think here's a man who write, writes arguably one of the best historical biographies of the 20th century, that his biography of Marlborough. Mm. Um, so he's a man with a historical perspective and my goodness me, don't we need politicians if anything highlights. Um, they need political leaders with a sense of history and an ability to see perspective uh, understand where we've come from and where we might be going to as a result. Yeah. And he's, sort of, he's got this extraordinary ability to communicate. And I would say, going back to the characteristics of leadership, leaders have got to be able to communicate. They've got to be able to understand. They've got to be able to empathize. They've got to be able to tap into the, the worries, the fears, the thoughts of the people they lead. And they've got to be able to demonstrate through their ability to communicate that they can that, that they're on that you know they're going to be that they're going to be okay and of course churchill did that in a masterful way in his in those great speeches but those didn't come from nowhere he practiced assiduously he he, he had he made public he made the art of public speaking um he, you know he made himself good at it um by speaking on the stump on election rallies uh all the way through you know for 40 years before he was prime minister um, and so he took time, and of course, that also highlights another aspect of his, 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 his ability to work, his ability to, to really apply sustained hard, hard work. He took only about eight days off, uh, eight days leave in the whole of the Second World War. The rest of the time he was, he was driving and working and leading all the way. So, I mean, I think he's the most inspirational uh, individual I could, you know, one could, one could think about, frankly. Fantastic. And, and now we need our political leadership more than ever with Brexit and with COVID and a global pandemic and a recession. And we're sadly uh, lacking it, but that's another story, even though someone leading us has written about Churchill himself. But uh, I think there's, there's, we, we don't have leaders of that caliber, sadly, at the moment. Let's talk about COVID and, and how's it impacted the way people lead now and in the future, do you think? What, What's going what's gonna to change by this fundamental moment in history for us? What, how, how do you see the future being in the way people lead uh, and the way we're going to be doing business, for example? Well, I'm one of those who thinks that this is a, uh, this is a, a, a turning point in, 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 in our history. I think pan the pandemic has been, has demonst is, is demonstrating that it is an accelerant of various trends. Um, and in terms of leadership, um, I think what it has absolutely highlighted is that if companies are to be fit for purpose in the post-COVID world or in the world that exists as we emerge from the pandemic, notwithstanding the fantastic news about a vaccination, and let's pray that that, is a, that works and can, can give us a chance to return to some sort of normality, the way we, the experience of the last seven months will have, will, will have left scars and we should learn from this experience what should people be learning number one i think is invest 
in leadership. Too many companies, I think, do not invest in leadership. They will appoint a CEO who has no leadership experience at all. He or she might have been a very capable CFO, a COO. Um, but where, but, but very rarely has there been a, 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 a significant effort to invest in leadership. Uh, and of course, going back to the discussion with the army, one of the, I'm not saying everybody should emulate the army far from it, but one of the reasons the army gets it less wrong than most is because it invests in its leaders. It's got processes and systems, boards, confidential reports, gradings, and it's got training and education. And of course, selection. No young man or woman goes through the gates of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst unless they have demonstrated in a very rigorous test their ability, their leadership potential. And then of course, thereafter at every level, it's, it's trained into them and educated through life education. So number one, invest in leadership. The, the second really important factor is resilience. This crisis has demonstrated that companies with no resilience are not going to survive. And this requires, and too often, the, because the margins have been cut and cut and cut, resilience has been, has, has, been, uh, has been taken out of it. Resilience of supply chains is an obvious area. Um, but it's more than resilient. You know, how you build resilience is, is through, firstly, thinking strategically and thinking, and thinking uh, planning, and acting strategically, and then planning sufficiently uh, and in, in, you know, in order to support that strategy. But of course, plans need to be tested. And this is where I think the military, military experience of wargaming is so important, because wargaming allows you to subject plans in an intellectually liberating and safe to fail environment to the rigor of testing. And I, you know, I think I, I cannot ex uh, highlight the importance, for example, of setting up a proper war game. This is a, you know, make it a formal process. You need to set up a team and, you know, this is something we do on a regular basis in, you know, in Strategia, but, and then you select your most anarchic and free thinking individuals from your team, your staff, your company, put them together as a red team Role, to role play the competition, the regulator, other stakeholders. And then you go through your plans step by step. You move, but like a chess game, you take a move, they'll come back at you and say, well, if you do that, this is what we're gonna to do to, to disrupt you, to undermine you. And that way you begin to find the holes and the gaps and the weaknesses in your plan. And then you can go back and then redesign it. But I'd also say another thing about planning, as Eisenhower said, it's not the plan that matters, it's planning. And in planning, it's planning that gives you the, uh, <coughs> the agility to step, uh, to, to move forward and, and, to, and, 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 and to, to find solutions when things go wrong. Can you still hear me, Jonathan? Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. And, and really taking it on from, from uh, the way it's impacted now and in the future. So we're thinking about investing in leadership, resilience, wargaming plans. Anything else before we go on to other top tips for leading in a crisis and change? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, mission command, empowerment. Um, don't try, I mean, again, a lesson from the army, the military world. It's, don't expect, you've got to allow people to use their initiative. Um, 
in the military context, it's the you know it's the it's the yeah it's the, it's a corporal on a bridge with a in an observation position who can see much better than any general sitting back in a in a remote headquarters what is going on. But they have to so empower people to use their initiative, but they have to use their initiative. They have to understand the overall strategic intent. What is the big picture? What is what is what is the the aim? And if they use their initiative in line with that, they will not go far wrong. Then give them the resources they need. Make sure they've got the resources they need. But of course, it comes back to trust, and trust takes time to build. Uh, and that's something again, I would say, that uh, that CEOs in this post-COVID world need to take time to really build up trust uh, uh, in, in their organisations. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so we, we haven't got uh, very long left now. But top, if you're giving a couple of top tips for leading in a crisis and change building on those good points you've made already? Well, uh, I, I mean, I, I, all, all, of, all of the above, really. Um, and, 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 and in terms of, you know, where, where people go right, wrong, it's, 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 in not, it's in not taking the time and the trouble to, to think strategically, to plan, and to, to really stress test planning. So top tip, build resilience. I can't yeah. say more than that. But second top tip, is as a leader, it's communicate. And that's going back to the point about understanding uh, and empathy uh, and tapping into people's worries and fears and, 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 and really reassuring um, that you've got their best interests at heart. It's about EQ, it's not about IQ. Brilliant. And so we'll end with a, a difficult one for a historian who reads so much. But if you were to pick one book that you've found particularly interesting, in addition to the uh, Andrew Roberts one on Winston Churchill, uh, that would be good about uh, leadership and maybe relevant for the current, the current time and this pivotal moment in history that we're now at. Is there a book you'd like to recommend to people? It's got to be Defeat into Victory by Bill Slim. Yeah. Uh, read that. It's so relevant. The story of how he takes 14th Army defeated, demoralized, <coughs> utterly taken to pieces by the Japanese in the jungles of Burma, retrains it, re-energizes it, builds morale, inspires it, and then takes it back through those vicious, vicious battles of Imphal and Kahima. You know, Britain Stalin grabbed Kahima. Um, fish, and then, and then, uh, then leads it to victory. And this is not a British army. It's an it's it's a it's an it's a multinational army. There are Indians. There are East Africans. There are West Africans. I mean, my father served with the with the, the fifth battalion of the King's African Rifles, the Kenya battalion, fighting his way down the Kabul Valley through deep jungle, malaria. Uh, the only supplies that came in were were, were by by air when the when the clouds the monsoon clouds lifted, but slim inspired them. Uh, and he, 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 his book, Defeat into Victory, I think is the masterpiece of, for, for every, every aspiring leader. Yeah, uh, and I, I would agree with you having read it. It was very inspirational. So thank you. Richard, it, this has been superb, very insightful, great deal of wisdom and experience to share. So thank you very much. Stay on the line, we'll chat after this, but I really appreciate you, you sharing what you've learned with others.
So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.